This morning, I invite you to take a Bible in hand and turn to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. In a little bit here, we'll read all 23 verses. If you're using a Bible from the Purack, you can find today's passage on page 33. If you weren't here last week, uh, last week we began a sermon series here in the morning on the life of Joseph. In the course of five weeks total, we'll look to cover Genesis 37 through 50. Last week in chapter 37, we took note of the providence of God in the suffering of his people, and particularly the providence of God in suffering and sanctification. I remind you that in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord had promised Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as we're coming to the end of Genesis and looking at the life of Joseph, the question keeps arising, arriving before us and arising from the text, how? How is this going to happen? Because last week we saw in chapter 37 that Jacob's household... Abraham's grandson is filled with sin. Jacob's sons, Abraham's great-grandsons, on the whole, are not men of great character. And this family is wrecked by sin. The promise that God gave to Abraham is threatened by a fractured and sinful family. Now, among Jacob's 12 sons, only one seems to have the potential to be the man of faith and character, Joseph. He's the second to youngest. Ten of his brothers are just, they're scoundrels. And then the youngest, we don't know enough about Benjamin yet to access his character. And at first glance, Genesis 37 leaves us in suspense on how God will fulfill his promise to Abraham. Why? Because Joseph here is captured by his brothers. He's 17 years old and sold into slavery into Egypt. It is his brothers who then deceive Jacob into believing that Joseph is killed by a wild animal. And so it's a you're kind of left on the cliff. What will happen? You're left saying, as we said last week, God, what are you up to? What are you doing here? Now, the author of Genesis, Moses, uh, he tells the story in such a way that we see what the characters in the story don't always see. We can see in Genesis 37 the hand of God at work in Joseph's life, even when he is stripped of his robe that he was given by his father and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, we can see it, even if Joseph can't see it. God's providence is on display. His hand is hidden to Joseph, but not to us, the readers. And so here we pick up in the story and we see God's providence, his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, 
and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Before we read the text this morning, I want you to know that providence can be a great comfort to you, but oftentimes you find yourself in a position like Joseph and you can't discern God's ways and what he's doing. Isn't that the truth? The Puritan John Flavel uh, famously described God's providence this way. He said, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. Now, if you're not familiar with Hebrew, it's you read it from right to left. So you may pick up a book. If it's written in Hebrew, uh, and you open to the first page, you've actually opened to the end. And Flavel's point is that that's how God's providence is with his, his people. That in the moment, it's difficult to discern his way. Sometimes his way, it says in the Psalms, is like through the sea. Well, you, it's hard to really trace out a path through the sea. You may see the ripples, but it's not like walking on sand when you can see clearly someone's direction and where they've come from. And oftentimes we find ourselves in a position where we're saying, God, what are you up to? And then later, like a Hebrew word, read backwards, we can see his hand was with me all the way, working for my good, for my salvation, for the building of my character, for shaping me in holiness, making me more like his son. Now, we skip chapter 38 for now. We'll reference it later. But as we come to 39, chapter 39 is unique in the Joseph story. So just briefly, let me call attention to what we're about to read. In verses 1 through 6, we get something of a, a theological narration where we are told what God is up to with Joseph in these first six verses. And so it's almost as if the veil is pulled back and we get to see God's purpose and providence for Joseph. And then the passage, the chapter ends in verses 21 through 23 in the same way. In the first part, he is in Potiphar's house. In the end, he's in prison. But we are told from God's perspective what God is doing. Then in verses 7 through 20, we find out how he ends up in prison. And we are told what really happened between Joseph and his master Potiphar's wife. Before we read God's word, let us go to him and ask for his help in prayer this morning. Please join me in prayer. But Lord, this is your word. Heavenly Father, you have given it to us for our comfort, for our strength, to convict us of sin, to lead us in the way of righteousness. We ask that your word would be at work through your spirit this morning among us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us an appetite for your word. As Kevin prayed earlier from Psalm 19, may it be honey for us. May it nourish us. And may we delight in it. And may it be for our delighting in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, 
had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time that he had made him an overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness, sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all 
our hearts. Now, clearly, this story has a hero and a villain. Potiphar's wife, we don't know her by name. Could be that her name was intentionally left off in order to dishonor this immoral woman. She is the immoral woman that the Proverbs warns against. She is attempting to be a seductress. She is a deadly seductress. As Proverbs 5.5 5 says, her feet go down to death. But fleeing from the immoral woman is not the main point of Genesis 39. And it must be noted that Genesis throughout shows sexual sin to be a plague on both sexes. Here, particularly on Potiphar's wife. And this is one of the reasons why Joseph stands out as the hero. He's the only person in the book of Genesis that so clearly flees temptation. Think about it. Has anyone so far in this story from the beginning to now flee temptation in such a way that Joseph has? Now in our day, it's easy to become numb to the moral failings of leaders, isn't it? Numb to the moral failings of political leaders. It's got to the point that it almost seems unreasonable to expect chastity out of a, a government leader or maybe a business leader. And I would imagine that if you've been in church for any time, at least maybe a decade or so, you know of at least one former Christian leader who was removed from ministry because of a moral failing or failings. And then there are other headlines if you don't know any cases personally. So while we are upset over the injustice suffered by Joseph because of these false accusations, there is a celebration in this chapter that here is a story of a man of character. A hero worthy of admiring. Now this takes place, we're not certain exactly when, but Joseph is somewhere between the ages of 17 and 28. 17 and 28 years old. But if you come away from today thinking Joseph is the hero, so the, the lesson is be like Joseph, you've missed the main point. If that's what I leave you with and that's what I take away, that's not the main point. The main point is there in verse 2 of chapter 39. Look back there. The first part, the Lord was with Joseph. And then in verse 21 again, the first part, but the Lord was with Joseph. This is the only place in the story that we are explicitly told that the Lord was with him. But it governs the entire story. All that came before and all that will come after. The Lord is with Joseph. Joseph is the hero because the Lord is with him. 
This is the man that the Lord is making him to be, shaping him to be. This in God's providence is what God is orchestrating for the development of this young man's character. It's a good illustration of what Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, Joseph is not passive here. He makes decisions. He exerts effort. He does not compromise. He resists temptation. But it was because the Lord was with him that he's able to and does so. He is working out his salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in him to will and to work for God's good pleasure. So that's the big picture. That's the main lesson. And under that banner, I'm going to dig in and learn something about how this story does help us face temptation. Because we all face it. And with as many people that are in this room, I'd venture that there is a, a substantial percentage of you here who this is a major area of discouragement. Your repeated failures when faced with temptation. There's something for all of us here. But especially if you feel beat down, if you feel like the enemy has your number over and over again, and every time you go down to the mat, you hear that 10 count start, you feel like you barely are able to get off. And it's the Lord who is helping you, and there is help for you here in God's Word this morning from Genesis 39. So I got three headings for us that we'll consider the passage. It's not really a breakdown of the passage. It's a more of a thematic headings that we see here in this chapter. The first is I wanted to pay attention to the timing of temptation. The second thing I wanted to see in this passage is what temptation reveals. And then lastly, we close with the courage for resisting temptation, the courage to resist temptation. First, the timing of temptation. Now, I've mentioned it before, but throughout church history, believers have always seen Joseph as a, a type of Christ. And there's been a lot, of, a lot of good parallels. And I think it's very intentional that the God who was writing history also gave us the scriptures and, event, and did set down Joseph and order his life in such a way that it would point us to his son who would come. And so, if you're tracking with the life of Christ and how Joseph points us to that, you remember Christ, when he begins his ministry, what happens? He begins with going to fast and pray in the wilderness for 40 days and enter into a time of repeated temptation from the enemy, directly from Satan. Now, do you recall how at the end of that account, when Jesus resists, the temptation from Satan, and he does so, repeating to Satan the promises of God from God's word. What Luke says, Luke chapter 4, verse 13 says that Satan departed from Jesus until 
an opportune time. Until an opportune time. So that means that there were other occasions in the life of Christ where Satan did come to try to tempt him directly. He was looking for an opportune time. And so it is with all temptation, there is a a timing component. There is timing that happens, that the enemy of your soul is looking for an opportune time. Now here in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 39, what is that opportune time for Joseph? Well, take note, it's a time when everything is going well. It's a time of prosperity. He is experiencing the blessing of the Lord and God's goodness and kindness and orchestrating these events. Joseph doesn't end up in the field, but he ends up in the house. And in the house of Potiphar, he has opportunities to then, through hard work and diligence, be promoted. And he is promoted. By God's providence, he's in Potiphar's house. And as he is there working, it is easy for Potiphar to recognize God's blessing on all that Joseph touches. Verse 3 of 39. And then in verse 6, we see that he is promoted. And here, everything in Potiphar's house, Joseph identifies as at his disposal. Except for one thing, Potiphar's wife. And it's Potiphar's wife who comes to him. Temptation comes in a time of prosperity and well-being. And it comes as a surprise. Here, it comes as a, a very brash, a very direct, immoral invitation. The, the, the Hebrew is very jolted here. She's saying, lie with me. Not what he expected. And so immediately he, as any of us would in those situations, we would be be caught off guard. Not what you were expecting when you showed up to work that day. But in there, in that surprising temptation, it's an invitation. She's just laying it out there for him. There's something where recognizing that when temptation comes, sometimes it comes subtly and sometimes it just comes in your face. With that, there's something to do with it. Because in there, there's an invitation. What are you going to do with me? And Joseph has a decision to make. Will he let that seed, that just crass, direct invitation take root? Now, there's no hint in this passage at all of inappropriate behavior by Joseph. He wasn't dabbling. He wasn't teasing. You're wrong to see that he was flirting. No. But the temptation comes anyway. Then, not only does it have surprising timing, but it becomes a constant battle. It becomes a constant assault. Look back at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. 
She's in his ear. Every time he shows up to work, lie with me, lie with me. But then it kind of changes. You see there in verse 10, she says, well, just, just lie beside me. Lie beside me. Just, just come here. Just, it's okay. Take, Joseph, you've been working so hard. Why don't you take a break? Come enjoy a glass of wine with me. Let's, let's sit here. Enjoy the, the late afternoon breeze. Let's just, let's just catch up. And he refuses. He won't be caught next to her. He won't listen to what she has to say. But it's a daily battle. A constant assault at this point. It's the opposite of what we see with Samson in the sense that it was the daily pursuit of Delilah to get Samson's secret that eventually led to his destruction. At first, remember, Samson can, tells Delilah, sends her on the wrong path. She says, why, why are you so strong? There's got to be a secret. Why is it? And he says, well, if you try this, then that's the key to my strength. If you try this, but she just stayed in his ear, stayed by his side, wouldn't stop, and eventually it leads to Samson's demise. Here's the opposite with Joseph. Daily he resists. Daily he is on guard. He does not allow the invitation to take root in his heart. But the last part of the timing, it's the, it's, it's the moment where everything comes together. There's an ambush in verses 11 through 12. An ambush. It would appear that Joseph has conducted his business in Potiphar's house in such a way that he has avoided this such scenario for who knows is it weeks is it months is it years at this point we don't know but at some point his work puts him in the home with her alone look back at verse 11 through 12 but one day when he went into the house to do his work so he was doing what he was supposed to do and none of the men of the house was there in the house she caught him by the garment saying lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and got out of the house. It's a new set of circumstances. The larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, cites this story when it's expounding what is required of believers by the, by the, the seventh commandment. And it uses this as an example of we are to shun all occasions of uncleanness. There's a very clear warning for us here, isn't there? That whenever possible, avoid circumstances in which you might find yourself in this situation. And then in larger catechism, 139, it says, do not keep unchaste company. Now, this is beyond Joseph's control, but it is good for us to take note and say we are to recognize those who are unchaste, who do not keep the same commitments to what God has revealed in his word about sexual ethics. And they are not to be part of our, our regular company, if possible. But here is a man who long before the ambush arises, 
And long before the moment of decision is before him, he has made a decision that he will serve God no matter what. He exemplifies those who live in the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to live in the fear of the Lord? Well, it is a weighty concept in Scripture, and it is the beginning of wisdom for each of us. How to navigate a sinful world requires wisdom, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And what is vital to the fear of the Lord is recognizing that we live all of life before the view of our God. And Joseph, for one moment, will not entertain the idea that no one is in the house, it's only me and her. But he has already lived in such a way that he knows God is always present. God is always watching. Nothing is hidden from him. Because in the moment of temptation, it is too late to fortify your commitment to the Lord. It is too late to decide to walk in the fear of the Lord in the moment of temptation. The timing of temptation. Take note. But then we here see what temptation reveals. In this passage, we see temptation unearths something. It exposes something. For Joseph, it reveals godly character. For Potiphar's wife, it reveals ungodly character. Now, this is important for us to think about because oftentimes when we find ourselves having to confess that we gave in to temptation. We, we want to try to maybe dismiss the, the mistake, the, the slip up, the struggle, and say, well, you know that's not the real me. That was, that was just a, a one-time thing. That was a one-time slip. It was a little stumble. But we must reckon with that when we give into temptation, we learn something about our character. We learn about our blind spots, our faults, our weaknesses, where we do not reflect the character of Christ. And so we don't get the opportunity to say in our failings, and when they are exposed to others, say, well, that's not the real me. It is meant to humble us. Temptation reveals character. And we have a character contrast set up here in Genesis 39, don't we? It begins with something that Joseph and Potiphar's wife have in common. They're are both powerful people, and they have that in common. And I think it's fair to say that they were both pretty people. We get that description of Joseph and the second half of verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That means that like his, his, his physical form, his body, he was, he was ripped, he was cut. He was an athletic, powerful young man. It was obvious when you looked at him. And then he was handsome in his face. Now, it doesn't give a physical description of Potiphar's wife, but I think it's safe to assume that a powerful leader in Egypt probably gets to choose a beautiful spouse, right? As I've heard one person put it, it's rare that you ever see an NFL player with an unattractive wife. 
at least while they're in their prime, making their millions, right? What's the typical sad story? Is that they leave behind their old college girlfriend and then they find their model wife, you know, from Instagram or something like that. And it's rare that someone of prestige and power and wealth has an unattractive spouse. And Potiphar now has gotten more than he bargained for in choosing the beauty queen. He's gotten a woman whose beauty is only external. She's controlled by her lust. The way that she tries to seduce Joseph, it's, it's not sweet, it's, romant, it's not romantic. It's just sexual urge. Lie with me. And it progresses to, in the moment of ambush, she grabs him. She caught him. This is the description of how sin has gripped this woman and shaped her, that she is the aggressor. She is, she is attempting to be the assaulter. She is the one who's becoming violent with Joseph. And then immediately, this scorned woman seeks revenge. It's a sad display of her character, and it's revealed in this story. Now, in verses 19 through 20, it talks about Potiphar being angry. And we're not told directly who his anger is towards. He's, he's angered because certainly that the situation, his most trusted servant, whom everything he touches is blessed, is now being accused by his wife of this crime. And now his wife is blaming him and saying, the Hebrew that you brought in here, she is the re- he is the reason why this has come upon me. And it says it angers Potiphar. But then Potiphar doesn't do what he had the right to do. Joseph is a slave and doesn't have the right to a trial. Potiphar has the right to execute Joseph, which would have been a a common consequence and would have been a common punishment for someone who would have committed adultery in the ancient Near East. But instead, Potiphar puts him in prison and puts him in the king's prison. It could be that part of Potiphar's anger is it's, it's with his, his wild wife, with his wicked wife. He's come to know her character, and he's, he's caught in a bad place where he must listen to her accusation, but he's not sure if he can really trust her or believe her. And so he spares Joseph execution and puts him in the prison. But there's another contrast that's happening here in chapter 39, and that's what happened in chapter 38. We won't read the whole story, but the chapter 38 is the story of Joseph's brother Judah. And maybe you've read the, the book of Genesis and you're thinking, this is a weird interruption into the Joseph story. Why is this story of Judah placed here in between Joseph being sold into slavery and then Joseph in Potiphar's house? Have you ever thought to yourself, why should I care? Why is that here in this passage? Well, what Moses is doing for is that he is setting up a contrast between Judah and Joseph. Because Judah is a very 
important character in this story. And he has a very important role to play. And God has something for Judah that he is doing in Judah's life. But right now, Judah is still a scoundrel. And when tempted and when tested in sexual morality in chapter 38, Judah fails horribly. Judah fails horribly. He's, his son dies, and his son's wife's name was Tamar. And it was responsible for Judah as the, her father-in-law to provide another son that would provide offspring that would be an heir to his oldest son. And his, the first time he does this, his, his son is wicked, and he doesn't provide an offspring for Tamar. And then it happens again and again. And then finally, Judah withholds his youngest son from Tamar. And Tamar learns of this. And Judah, who deceived his own father, gets a taste of his own medicine. And Tamar deceives Judah and is impregnated by him. And at the end of 38, Judah is this, this failure. This man, when tested, fails. This man of, of, of poor character and given into his sexual desires. And here's his brother, Joseph. Joseph, who in his position refuses to sin against Potiphar. What does he say back in verse 9? He says, this is a great wickedness he doesn't downplay it. He doesn't soften the, the, the temptation. He calls it what it is. He says, this is a great wickedness. And then he says, this is a sin against God. Joseph is a man of the utmost character. And in the moment where he's talking to, to Potiphar's wife, as it's related here, just think about what he's doing as she's coming to him. He's trying to persuade her not to go down this road. He has Potiphar in mind. He has his own responsibility and position in mind. He has the fear of God before him. And his character is such that he's trying to say, let's not go here. This is terrible. This is not simply an affair. This is a great wickedness and a sin against God. This is who Joseph is. Potiphar has entrusted everything to his house. Potiphar has no concern about Joseph being alone with his wife. And Joseph was clear on what honored God. It's amazing. As he flees temptation here, he does what, what Adam and Eve failed to do. That Joseph has the wits about him to look around and say, here is all that God is blessing and this one thing is prohibited. Don't touch Potiphar's wife. All this blessing, one thing, do not touch. Adam in the garden, all the blessing of God, anything that he would need for life except one command, one prohibition. Adam fails. Here, Joseph passes the test. 
And it's not just a test about sexual morality and sexual temptation. Joseph is now demonstrating that he is not going to follow the path of his father, Jacob, the deceiver. In chapter 38, Judah follows the path of the deceiver and gets deceived. The seeds that he's sown, he comes to reap. Joseph now stands before God and he has the opportunity. This can be the secret between him and Potiphar's wife. They can deceive everyone. They're alone in the house. Not only does he resist sexual temptation, but he's not going to be a deceiver like the rest of his family. The Lord is at work in this man's life. The Lord is at work in this man's life in a powerful way. Now, in chapter 37, we're, we're, we're told about Joseph having this robe given to him by his father. We didn't spend too much time talking about it last week, but I remind you of it today because the best we know about this robe is that it was to, to signal leadership and honor and authority. Something of like a royal robe. Joseph was being set apart among his brothers to be the leader. And here, in verse 12 of chapter 39, what does Potiphar's wife grab from Joseph? His garment. There's a literary theme. There's something to pick up on. The garment is taken from Joseph. Here, he's being tested. Joseph, God has big plans for your life. He has a calling on your life that is crucial to God fulfilling his promises to your great-grandfather Abraham. But before you can be entrusted with that, with all that is represented in that robe, here is a situation that God in his providence puts you in in order that you might pass the test, that you might be proven faithful in all things and entrusted with more. And here in Joseph goes from being the exalted son to humiliation upon humiliation. And then we'll see later in the story, he is exalted again. He points us to the Savior. Lastly, in this passage, we see the courage to resist temptation. The courage to resist temptation. Alexander McLaren said it this way, Come what will of it. Right is right, and sin is sin. Consequences never deter from duty. It's better to have a clean conscience and be in prison than do wickedness and sit at the king's table. We see a lot of courage on display here in Joseph, right? He's willing to go to prison and give up his place in Potiphar's house. He suffers as one who is falsely accused with no recourse to any legal restitution as a slave. He does what is right for right's sake. He calls sin, sin. And the consequences do not deter him from obedience to the Lord. It's a great display of courage. And here, to be clear, 
we see that courage looks like running sometimes. Courage looks like getting up and fleeing temptation. Oftentimes we don't associate fleeing with courage, but this is godly fleeing and godly courage on display. 2 Timothy 2.22, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lust. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. Don't allow the invitation to take root and bear fruit and destruction in your life. There's a display of courage, but I want to get behind that. What is the source of Joseph's courage? What is the source? It is that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. Joseph knows that the blessing that is coming through his hand is not due to his his own skill and gifting, though he obviously is a very skilled and gifted administrator and leader, but he knows that it is the Lord's blessing. Joseph remembers that God has given him dreams and told him that one day you will lead your people. And so that is God's word to Joseph, and he is clinging to that. Think about it. Joseph at this point, he, he, he doesn't have uh, even a full Pentateuch. He doesn't even have the full, if there's anything recorded there that's passed on to God's people, it's very little. But what word he has from God, he is clinging to. And he knows that God is with him. And God has not left him in Potiphar's house. God didn't leave him in the pit. And God, he is convinced, won't leave him in prison. That God will be with him there. It's a challenging thought, but we have to press it. God's blessing doesn't mean that we get to avoid adversity. No, it's because of the blessing of God and His presence that we're able to endure and make it through. It is a lie to say that the the path of least resistance is obviously God showing you what he wants for your life. Now, quite often, his revealed will leads you down the most difficult path before you. And you recognize that this is righteous and I can trust God that no matter what comes in this, he will be with me. He will remain. And that is courage for you, dear saint and believer. That is courage for you who are weary and beat up by the world That is courage for those who have repeatedly failed when faced with temptation. Take courage that the Lord is with you and he is your strength in it. Remember when when Joshua later is facing the most daunting task we see possibly in the Old Testament. That he would be the successor to Moses, the great leader of God's people. What an intimidating place to be in. What did God tell Joseph, uh, Joshua? Be strong and courageous, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. It is God's presence with his people that gives them courage in the battle. And you might say, well, that's for Joseph. God had special designs and important plans in the course of redemptive history for Joseph. And you might say, well, that's for Joshua. He had to come after Moses. 
But dear, dear saint, it's for every believer. It's always been for every believer. Listen, quite oftentimes we end our services with their Aaron's benediction from Numbers chapter 6. You know Aaron's benediction, right? The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what we see happening with Joseph. Long, 400 years prior to Aaron pronouncing this priestly benediction, God was blessing and keeping and making his face shine upon and being gracious to Joseph. But when God instructs Aaron to pronounce this, it's not just on Moses that this blessing is directed. It's not just on the leaders. It's not just for the Levites and the priests. It's for all the people. It's for all the people of God. That God would bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Numbers 6, 23, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people you shall say to them. And then in verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. What was Aaron doing as he pronouncing? But he's pronouncing the Lord's name on God's people. He's setting them apart as God's objects of love and desire and affection and blessing. He's setting God's name on them. And that's what we do with every Christian when we baptize them. Baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're, you're set apart from the world for God's purposes. And God is at work in your life. And He will accomplish His purposes in His baptized people. He sets their name on them to bless them, to keep them, to bring them to Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's a very helpful passage on, on temptation. We close here. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's good news. God doesn't let you find yourself in a situation that is beyond what you are ready to handle as far as temptation. But oftentimes when I think about this verse, I, I think I've thought about it the wrong way. That God just kind of pushes me out of the nest and says, all right, there you go. I'm not going to let it get too hard for you, but you go do it. You go do it. You stay strong. You do it. I won't let you be put in a situation that is too much for you. You do it. And I forget what else the Bible teaches about union with Christ. That in that, in that situation that the Lord ordains for me with a way of escape, that my character might be, be proven and that it might become more like Christ. He doesn't abandon me to that. 
No, he remains with us. It's, it's the Emmanuel principle. When God introduces his son to the world, he says, Emmanuel, he will be God with you. And what is becoming clearer and clearer in the scriptures for us on this side of the cross, it's so evident. Dear Saint, God and the person of the Son by the Spirit is with you. And what he told Joshua, the writer of Hebrews picks up in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when I ordain your testing and adversity before you, I, I, don't, I don't say, all right, do your best. It's not like you're teaching your child to, to ride a bike and then you, you slowly uh, take the training wheels off and then you run behind them and then eventually you let go and see if they could do it by themselves. And then you watch them crash and fall and it's, you convince yourself it's good for them to get a couple raspberries on their knees. They'll learn from it. It'll make them tougher. And then next time, they'll, they'll be stronger. No, it's, he doesn't, that's not, that's not Emmanuel. Emmanuel came, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we should have died, ascended, conquering sin, death, and the grave, and sent his spirit to dwell among us. And that spirit never leaves. Never leaves, nor forsakes us. That's your courage, dear saint, in the face of whatever your enemy will bring before you. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are a God, that you are never caught off guard by the circumstances of our lives. That in fact, you have ordained every single one of them for our good and your glory and that you are at work at all times and you never take a break. So Lord, in the moment of trial and temptation, help us to walk with courage and confidence, committed to your word, persevering, knowing that you will receive all the glory and it will be for our good. You are our rock, our refuge, and our strength. You are a mighty fortress for all who will flee and run to you. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.